Book four, section six through eight of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book four, the will of King Cole, section six. How long could a man expect to stand on the steps of a company building, with a super and a pit boss at his back, and organize a union of mine workers? Hal realized that he must move the crowd from that perilous place. "'You'll do what I say now?' he demanded, and when they agreed in chorus he added the warning. "'There'll be no fighting, and no drinking. If you see any man drunk tonight, sit on him and hold him down.' They laughed and cheered. Yes, they would keep straight. Here was a job for sober men, you bet." And now, Hal continued, the people in the hospital. We'll have a committee go in and see about them. No noise. We don't want to disturb the sick men. We only want to make sure nobody else is disturbing them. Someone will go in and stay with them. Does that suit you? Yes, that suited them. All right, said Hal. Keep quiet for a moment. And he turned to the superintendent. Cartwright, said he, we want a committee to go in and stay with our people. Then, as the superintendent started to expostulate, he added in a low voice, Don't be a fool, man. Don't you see I'm trying to save your life? The superintendent knew how bad it would be for discipline to let Hal carry his point with the crowd, but also he saw the immediate danger and he was not sure of the courage and shooting ability of bookkeepers and stenographers. "'Be quick, man!' exclaimed Hal. "'I can't hold these people long. If you don't want hell breaking loose, come to your senses.' "'All right,' said Cartwright, swallowing his dignity. And Hal turned to the men and announced the concession. There was a shout of triumph. "'Now, who's to go?' said Hal, when he could be heard again, and he looked about at the upturned faces. There were Tim and Warhope, the most obvious ones, but Hal decided to keep them under his eye. He thought of Jerry Minetti and of Mrs. David, but remembered his agreement with Big Jack to keep their own little group in the background. Then he thought of Mary Burke. She had already done herself all the harm she could do, and she was a person the crowd would trust. He called her, and called Mrs. Ferris, an American woman, in the crowd. The two came up the steps, and Hal turned to Cartwright. "'Now let's have an understanding,' he said. "'These people are going in to stay with the sick men, and to talk to them if they want to, and nobody's going to give them any orders but the doctors and nurses. Is that right?' "'All right.' said the superintendent, sullenly. "'Good,' said Hal. "'And for God's sake, have a little sense and stand by your word. This crowd has had all it can endure, and if you do any more to provoke it, the consequences will be on you. And while you're about it, see that the saloons are closed and kept closed until this trouble is settled. And keep your people out of the way, don't let them go about showing their guns and making faces. 
Without waiting to hear the superintendent's reply, Hal turned to the throng and held up his hand for silence. "'Men,' he said, "'we have a big job to do. We're going to organize a union, and we can't do it here in front of the hospital. We've made too much noise already. Let's go off quietly and have our meeting on the dump in back of the powerhouse. Does that suit you?' They answered that it suited them, and Hal, having seen the two women passed safely into the hospital, sprang down from the porch to lead the way. Jerry Minetti came to his side, trembling with delight, and Hal clutched him by the arm and whispered excitedly, "'Sing, Jerry! Sing them some Dago song!' End of Section 6 Section 7 They got to the place appointed without any fighting, and meantime Hal had worked out in his mind a plan for communicating with this polyglot horde. He knew that half the men could not understand a word of English, and that half the remainder understood very little. Obviously, if he was to make matters clear to them, they must be sorted out according to nationality, and a reliable interpreter found for each group. The process of sorting proved a slow one, involving no end of shouting and good-natured jostling. Polish here, Bohemian here, Greek here, Italian here. When this job had been done, and a man found from each nationality who understood enough English to translate to his fellows, Hal started in to make a speech. But before he had spoken many sentences, pandemonium broke loose. All the interpreters started interpreting at the same time, and at the top of their lungs. It was like a parade with the bands close together. Hal was struck dumb. Then he began to laugh, and the various audiences began to laugh. The orators stopped, perplexed, then they too began to laugh. So wave after wave of merriment rolled over the throng. The mood of the assembly was changed all at once, from rage and determination to the wildest hilarity. Hal learned his first lesson in the handling of these hordes of childlike people, whose moods were quick, whose tempers were balanced upon a fine point. It was necessary for him to make his speech through to the end, and then move the various audiences apart, to be addressed by the various interpreters. But then arose a new difficulty. How could any one control these floods of eloquence? How be sure that the message was not being distorted? Hal had been warned by Olson of company detectives who posed as workers, gaining the confidence of men in order to incite them to violence. And certainly some of these interpreters were violent-looking, and one's remarks sounded strange in their translations. There was the Greek orator, for example, a wild man with wild hair and eyes, who tore all his passions to tatters. He stood upon a barrel-head, with the light of two pit-lamps upon him, and some two score of his compatriots at his feet. 
He waved his arms, he shook his fists, he shrieked, he bellowed. But when Hal, becoming uneasy, went over and asked another English-speaking Greek what the orator was saying, the answer was that he was promising that the law should be enforced in North Valley. Hal stood watching this perfervid little man, a study in the possibilities of gesture. He drew back his shoulders and puffed out his chest, almost throwing himself backwards off the barrel-head. He was saying that the miners would be able to live like men. He crouched down and bowed his head, moaning. He was telling them what would happen if they gave up. He fastened his fingers in his long black hair and began tugging desperately. He pulled and then stretched out his empty hands. He pulled again, so hard that it almost made one cry out with pain to watch him. Hal asked what that was for, and the answer was, He say, stand by union. Pull one hair, he come out. Pull all hairs, no come out. It carried one back to the days of Aesop and his fables. Tom Olson had told Hal something about the technique of an organizer who wished to drill these ignorant hordes. He had to repeat and repeat, until the dullest in his audience had grasped his meaning, had got into his head the all-saving idea of solidarity. When the various orators had talked themselves out, and the audiences had come back to the cinder-heap, Howe made his speech all over again, in words of one syllable, in the kind of pigeon English which does duty in the camps. Sometimes he would stop to reinforce it with Greek or Italian or Slavish words he had picked up. Or perhaps his eloquence would inflame some one of the interpreters afresh, and he would wait while the man shouted a few sentences to his compatriots. It was not necessary to consider the possibility of boring any one, for these were patient and long-suffering men, and now desperately in earnest. They were going to have a union. They were going to do the thing in regular form, with membership cards and officials chosen by ballot. So Hal explained to them, step by step. There was no use organizing unless they meant to stay organized. They would choose leaders, one from each of the principal language groups, and these leaders would meet and draw up a set of demands, which would be submitted in mass meeting, and ratified, and then presented to the bosses with the announcement that until these terms were granted, not a single North Valley worker would go back into the pits. Jerry Minetti, who knew all about unions, advised Hal to enroll the men at once. He counted on the psychological effect of having each man come forward and give in his name. But here at once they met a difficulty encountered by all would-be organizers, lack of funds. There must be pencils and paper for the enrollment, and Hal had emptied his pockets for Jack David. He was forced to borrow a quarter and send a messenger off to the store. It was voted by the delegates that each member, as he joined the union, should be assessed a dime. 
There would have to be some telegraphing and telephoning if they were going to get help from the outside world. A temporary committee was named, consisting of Tim Rafferty, Warhope, and Hal, to keep the lists and the funds, and to run things until another meeting could be held on the morrow. Also a bodyguard of a dozen of the sturdiest and most reliable men were named to stay by the committee. The messenger came back with pads and pencils, and sitting on the ground by the light of pit lamps, the interpreters wrote down the names of the men who wished to join the Union, each man in turn pledging his word for solidarity and discipline. Then the meeting was declared adjourned till daylight of the morrow, and the workers scattered to their homes to sleep with a joy and sense of power such as few of them had ever known in their lives before. End of Section 7 Section 8 The committee and its bodyguard repaired to the dining-room of Reminitsky's, where they stretched themselves out on the floor. No one attempted to interfere with them, and while the majority snored peacefully, Hal and a small group sat writing out the list of demands which were to be submitted to the bosses in the morning. It was arranged that Jerry should go down to Pedro by the early morning train, to get into touch with Jack David and the union officials, and report to them the latest developments. Because the officials were sure to have detectives following them, Hal warned Jerry to go to McKellar's house, and have McKellar bring Big Jack to meet him there. Also, Jerry must have McKellar get the Gazette on the long-distance phone, and tell Billy Keating about the strike. A hundred things like this Hal had to think of. His head was a buzz with them so that when he lay down to sleep he could not. He thought about the bosses and what they might be doing. The bosses would not be sleeping, he felt sure. And then came thoughts about his private car friends, about the strangeness of this plight into which he had got himself. He laughed aloud in a kind of desperation as he recalled Percy's efforts to get him away from here. And poor Jessie! What could he say to her now? The bosses made no move that night, and when morning came the strikers hurried to the meeting place, some of them without even stopping for breakfast. They came tousled and unkempt, looking anxiously at their fellows, as if unable to credit the memory of the bold thing they had done on the night before. But finding the committee and its bodyguard on hand and ready for business, their courage revived. They felt again the wonderful sentiment of solidarity which had made men of them. Pretty soon speech-making began, and cheering and singing, which brought out the laggards and the cowards. So in a short while the movement was in full swing, with practically every man, woman, and child among the workers present. Mary Burke came from the hospital, where she had spent the night. She looked weary and bedraggled, but her spirit of battle had not slumped. 
She reported that she had talked with some of the injured men, and that many of them had signed releases, whereby the company protected itself against even the threat of a lawsuit. Others had refused to sign, and Mary had been vehement in warning them to stand out. Two other women volunteered to go to the hospital, in order that she might have a chance to rest. But Mary did not wish to rest. She did not feel as if she could ever rest again. The members of the newly organized union proceeded to elect officers. They sought to make Howe president, but he was shy of binding himself in that irrevocable way, and succeeded in putting the honor off on Warhope. Tim Rafferty was made treasurer and secretary. Then a committee was chosen to go to Cartwright with the demands of the men. It included Hal, Warhope, and Tim, an Italian named Marcelli, whom Jerry had vouched for, a representative of the Slavs and one of the Greeks, Rusik and Zamakis, both of them solid and faithful men. Finally, with a good deal of laughter and cheering, the meeting voted to add Mary Burke to this committee. It was a new thing to have a woman in such a role, but Mary was the daughter of a miner and the sister of a breaker boy, and had as good a right to speak as anyone in North Valley. End of section 8